Welcome to AM Now, where we bring you the trending accounting matters we're following. I'm your host, Adam Olson, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Nicole Harger and Matt Fisser. Each bite-sized episode keeps you and your finance and accounting teams in the know. Join us each week as we unpack these issues, topics, and accounting matters now. You're listening to AM Now, an accounting matters podcast. I'm Adam Olson. And I'm Nicole Harger. We are kicking things off this week, bringing you a few updates from the FASB, starting with an update on the tentative board decisions that the FASB made on its project focused on the accounting for and disclosure of software costs. We will then discuss the recent decisions reached by the Emerging Issues Task Force that if a consensus is reached, would require entities to apply the pre-existing contract approach when accounting for induced conversions of cash convertible debt instruments, and then end our FASB update chatter, highlighting the most recent private company council meeting. Yeah, we'll wind down this week by touching on some recent rulemaking from the SEC with the issuance of their fund names rule. So, Nicole, let's Mm -hmm. jump right into Mm -hmm. it. Can you tell us about what the FABZU was talking about when they were discussing their uh, recent uh, project on accounting and disclosure of software costs? Yeah, of course. Um, Well, at the September 20th board meeting, the board discussed recent feedback from a wide variety of stakeholders on the recognition of software costs, and they made some decisions. Beginning with the starting threshold of capitalization, the board approved for staff to continue researching a model that mandates the capitalization of software expenses starting when there is a high likelihood of completing the software project. When evaluating whether the software project is probable of being completed, an entity would be required to evaluate and meet all of the following criteria. Management commitment, identification of core capabilities, and absence of unresolved high-risk development issues. Additionally, an entity would need to consider its past experience for similar types of software when evaluating each criterion. The board has chosen not to delve deeper into the idea of including cost recoverability as a component of recognition. Yeah, and as it relates to the unit of account, the board mostly conveyed its endorsement for defining the unit of account as a software project, which could comprise of one or multiple activities aimed at collectively accomplishing a common goal. The board also decided amortization of capitalized software costs would begin at the point when both the software project reaches substantial completion, or after all significant testing is finished, for example, and when the software is put into service. And lastly, as it relates to subsequent activities, first, the board decided that when it is not clear that subsequent activities are a new software project under that rule of unit account definition, an entity would need to evaluate the direction and level of dependency between the existing software and the new software. Second, the board defined enhancements as significant activities that add new functionality, determined that the significance would be evaluated based on level of effort, and decided only enhancements would be subject to capitalization All of their costs would be expensed as incurred. A lot going on there. So what are the next steps then? So the board instructed the staff to, one, conduct focused outreach to investors, and then also explore whether targeted improvements could be made to existing software cost guidance to reflect how that guidance should be applied in an agile software development environment. Yeah, and it's safe to say we'll definitely be keeping an eye on the board's continued progress on this project. I know software costs are... Mm -hmm. uh, 
top of mind in the accounting form for lots of companies. So we'll be watching that one closely. So moving right along, an update from the EITF September meeting, specifically as it relates to decisions made for how to apply the induced conversion guidance to cash convertible debt instruments. <laughs> The existing accounting guidance for convertible debt instruments as outlined in ASC 470-20 didn't account for cash convertible debt instruments. ASU 2020-06 clarified that cash convertible debt instruments should follow the same contractual conversion rules as traditional ones under ASC 470-20. However, it didn't make any changes to the induced conversion guidelines. Cash convertible debt instruments have unique features, such as using a stated volume weighted average price period for determining the settlement amount. Questions have arisen about how the induced conversion guidance applies to cash convertible debt instruments, especially when the conversions deviate from the contractual terms. Such deviations could potentially trigger extinguishment accounting rather than induced conversion accounting. In order to provide clarity, the task force decided that entities would need to apply the pre-existing contract approach when accounting for induced conversions of cash convertible debt instruments. Specifically, ASC 470 would be amended to require that an inducement offer preserve the form and amount of consideration issuable pursuant to the original conversion privileges. The task force clarified that when determining whether the amount of cash or combination of cash and shares issuable under the original conversion privileges is preserved by the inducement offer, an entity should determine the amount based on the fair value of its shares as of the offer acceptance date. The issuer does not need to consider the possibility of holders receiving less cash or fewer shares than under the original terms. If there has been no substantial modification of the convertible debt in the year leading up to the offer acceptance date, the entity should use the terms of the convertible debt as they were a year ago to determine if induced conversion accounting can be applied. Now, the task force also decided that induced conversion accounting can be used for all convertible debt instruments with a substantive conversion feature at issuance, regardless of their current convertibility. For instance, debt instruments contingent on an event are within the guidance scope if the conversion feature is substantive when issued. The task force also laid out effective date and transition guidance. Specifically, if companies elect to adopt prospectively, they must apply the guidance to convertible debt instruments settled after the effective date and can choose to apply it to instruments settled after the adoption of ASU 202006. In the period of adoption, the entity must disclose the nature of and reason for the change in accounting principle. If the entity opts for retrospective adoption, it must disclose the nature of the change in accounting principle, the method used to implement the change, the cumulative impact on the change on retained earnings or other components of equity, the impact on the change on income from continuing operations, net income, affected financial statement line items, and any per share amounts for prior periods adjusted retrospectively. The task force will decide on an effective date after considering feedback on the consensus for exposure. Moving on to our last story from the FASB this week, the Private Company Council met last month. FASB staff provided an update on their project on improvements to income tax disclosures. PCC members engaged in a discussion regarding materiality considerations concerning the 5% threshold for disclosing income taxes paid by jurisdictions. Additionally, PCC members provided input on the challenges and expenses associated with providing detailed breakdowns of income or loss from continuing operations before income tax expense, distinguishing between domestic and foreign operations, 
an income tax expense or benefit from continuing operations distinguishing between federal, state, and foreign taxes. During that same meeting, the FASB staff presented an overview of decisions made on accounting for and disclosure of crypto assets. They pointed out that private company stakeholders had varying opinions on the suggested reconciliation of initial and final balances of cryptocurrency assets. The feedback received, along with input from previous PCC meetings, played a role in the re-deliberations. PCC members generally expressed their backing for the project. Furthermore, a preparer PCC member asked for further clarification regarding the board's choice not to offer guidance on transaction costs. Pivoting to the SEC, the Commission adopted amendments to Rule 35D-1 under the Investment Company Act of 1940, the Fund Names Rule. This amendment serves as a measure to prevent fund names from misrepresenting their inherent investments and risks, which include a requirement for investment companies with names that suggest a focus on a certain type of investment to adopt a policy to invest at least 80% of their value of their assets in those investments. SEC Chair Gary Gensler said today's final rule will help ensure that a fund's portfolio aligns with a fund's name. Such truth in advertising promotes fund integrity on behalf of fund investors. The amended rules extend the 80% investment policy requirement to any fund whose name implies a focus on specific fund characteristics. This includes funds' names containing terms like growth or value, and those referencing thematic investment focuses such as the incorporation of one or more ESG factors. Further, to ensure accurate compliance with the 80% investment policy, the amendments stipulate that funds holding derivatives must consider the notional amounts of those instruments instead of their market value, with certain adjustments. The amendments introduced enhanced prospectus disclosure requirements, obligating funds with an 80% investment policy to define the terms used in their names, along with the criteria for selecting investments matching those terms. Additionally, any terms suggesting an investment focus or tax-exempt distributions must align with plain English meanings or established industry conventions. Form import reporting will also provide greater transparency regarding how funds align with their investment focus. Furthermore, new record-keeping provisions will monitor compliance with the names rule. The amended rule maintains the requirement for funds to adhere to their 80% investment policy under normal circumstances. Funds will need to review their portfolio assets alignment with this policy at least quarterly with specific timeframes for returning to compliance if deviations do occur. These amendments also generally mandate that registered closed-end funds and BDCs without listings on national securities exchanges cannot change their 80% investment policy without shareholder approval. This safeguards investors' ability to vote on policy changes given limited exit options before such changes. However, exceptions are made if the fund conducts a tender or repurchase offer before the change, subject to specific conditions. Finally, the rule retains the existing 60-day notice requirement for changes in the fund's 80% investment policy unless it is a fundamental policy. It also updates the notice requirements to accommodate electronic delivery methods, providing additional specifics regarding content and delivery. The rule amendments will become effective 60 days after publication in the Federal Register. Fund groups with net assets of $1 billion or more will have 24 months to comply with the amendments, and fund groups with net assets of less than a billion will have 30 months to comply. 
And that rounds us out for this week. For a deeper dive into what's trending in accounting and finance, check out our other podcasts on the Accounting Matters feed on your preferred listening platform. Again, I'm Adam Olson. And I'm Nicole Harger. Thanks for listening to AM Now. We'll see you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.